You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Brian Shin. I wrote episode 309 of The Good Doctor. Born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Brian Shin rolled the dice after college to play poker professionally in Los Angeles. In L.A., he moonlighted as a journalist, covering high school football and writing for Corium, a pop culture magazine for Asian Americans. He's a proud alumnus of the ABC Disney writing program, Sundance Episodic Lab, and CBS Diversity Showcase. Brian is currently a story editor on the ABC drama The Good Doctor. In Season 3, Episode 9 of The Good Doctor, Sean will feel the pressure of escalating his physical relationship with Carly after she invites him over to, quote, Netflix and chill. After Sean decodes this sexual euphemism, his issues with intimacy will lead him to weigh the importance of sex within a romantic relationship. Meanwhile, a young patient must decide on a treatment that could save her life or possibly destroy her marriage. My entryway into this show was via the ABC Disney Writing Program, which is a, a writing fellowship. Every year they'll choose eight writers, usually a mix of drama and comedy. And once you get into that program, they'll start trying to place you onto shows that are ABC Disney properties. For me, it was uh, you kind of create a list of which shows you think your voice or your writing samples will be best suited for. My sample was a father-son drama you know, based in the world of the NBA and, and kind of about a gambling addict you know, Michael Jordan type father trying to reconcile his relationship with his son didn't have any correlation to the show. But I, but I'd watched, uh, I'd watched The Good Doctor, and, and I really thought it was the type of show where I, was like, I, I can't really figure out what they're doing. I, I can't reverse engineer a lot of these arcs. So I thought that would be a good challenge as a writer. You know, they connect you with the producer. That's kind of what I call a pants test, where they make sure you're, you're wearing pants. You're not a crazy person. And then from there, you meet with the showrunner. So uh, it was, it was really through the ABC Disney program that I got staff on the show. The biggest difference between this season and the last one, this one felt more serialized. It felt like we were doing more in terms of three or four episode arcs. What are we trying to accomplish? Whereas I think the first season of the show, which I wasn't on, but the second season, which I was on, was a lot more the week to week, what's going on. I think you're telling a personal story. It's going to be beginning, middle, end within one episode. So I thought that was pretty exciting to, to kind of step out and stretch it out, you know, start telling more long form stories. But at the beginning of the season, we're trying to figure out the serialized aspects, which is What's going on with the personal life of Sean Murphy, the main character in our show? What's going on with his love life? What's going on with his roommate situation? So we all kind of sit down in blue sky, one board for each character, each series regular on the show, and just start kind of figuring out, is is this the year Sean's going to have sex for the first time? Is this the year Sean's finally going to have his first girlfriend? What are the big arcs we're going to figure out throughout the season? As far as the episodes being distributed, it's, it's hierarchical. It starts out where... The showrunner, the executive producer will write the first episode, and you kind of go down the line from there, down the ladder. So I think we figured out the first four or five episodes, who was writing those, which was mostly the upper-level writers. And from there, we just started kind of breaking the stories of the first two episodes, and I don't think we assigned the rest of the season until a little bit further down the road. We're a procedural show, and we have two medical stories. So we usually classify those as the A medical story, B medical story. C story will usually be... A runner, which is the idea of fewer beats for Dr. Glassman, who's one of our series regulars. But his storylines live separately from the medical storylines. 
usually the A story will have a little more story to it. It'll have more beats. It'll have more connective tissue to Sean, the beat meaning a scene that moves the story forward about his personal life. This season, our main character, again, Sean Murphy, is for the first time kind of exploring, kind of like he's never really had a real sexual experience. And he has a lot of issues with just touch, sensitivity in general. And I thought that'd be interesting to explore because I remember the first time, I was getting personal. <laughs> I remember the first time when I was growing up and especially as a young man, you, you're kind of taught that, yeah, you want to have sex. You want to have these experiences and you'll never have any issues with that kind of thing. But I remember the first time I really kind of had that experience. It was kind of like even like a spin the bottle seven minutes in heaven type thing. Like I couldn't really pull the trigger. And I thought that was interesting to explore because it's like you never really see young men on television having issues with, oh, my God, having sex or being able to go through with things. So I thought that would be an interesting thing to explore for this character specifically because he is on the spectrum and him dealing with issues of touch because psychologically he wants to do those things. But physically or emotionally, there are things that are happening that make that more difficult for him. One of the other storylines we had, which I thought was really interesting, was from one of the writers in a room who was a former doctor. His brother was also a physician, had a patient that had a very, very rare condition where she had a tumor in a very sensitive area. And at the time, she, I think she was engaged, but was still a virgin at the time. They were trying to figure out kind of surgically, what can we do? And what they discovered was that if we remove this tumor, this woman can never have intercourse for the rest of her life, which was, I thought, a great kind of patient story for, for a young couple that's kind of facing that decision. The best way to break down the steps of the writing process are A, you have the story document, which is a half page to one page summation of, of what the episode's going to be, explaining what the A, B medical story is and what the personal story is for Sean. That goes through several stages of first you need to get your supervising producer. If you're a low-level writer, you have a supervising producer that's kind of making sure that what you turn into the showrunner is salvageable. It's something that the showrunner is not going to look at and say, this isn't ready, this is a waste of my time. The showrunner has to approve that document. Then it goes to the studio and the network for approval. So that's the exact same process you follow that for the story document, for the outline, which is probably a 15 and 16 page document where you do that same process and then you go to script from there. Our show, in comparison to others, doesn't get a lot of notes because our showrunner is a very, uh, he, has, he has a lot of prestige, a lot of steam. I, I think that's just, he wants to be very intensive, which is a great thing. I think from other experiences I've heard, sometimes the showrunner will just take over. They'll take the script over because they, it's their show, they know what they want and they think the most efficient way is for them to just rewrite you. But the great thing about this show is you get ownership of that script. You know, Ultimately, that showrunner is going to put his stamp on it and tell you what's working and what's not working. But this show, every step of the way, you're, you're there. You're part of the process. So the story document is a very interesting dance because you want to give them enough context to have them be interested in leaning in. But you don't want to give them too much information either. The more information you give them, the more they can pick at. And that's something the showrunner is very you know, aware of. He doesn't want to give the network a studio too much information. But he wants to understand what the broad strokes are. I think it took me the first draft, I would say, a week, which was a good amount of time. Beat sheets are the second step in the process after the story document. It's where you're separating all the elements of each individual storyline. So if you have a storyline which is about, is Sean going to lose his virginity this episode? Each one of those beaches, A, Sean goes on a date. B, Sean goes to the CVS to buy condoms. This doesn't have an episode. You know, C, Sean fails to have sex. Like, those are separated out, and whereas the medical stories do the MRI, and then there's a complication, then you do the surgery. So it's all separated, you know. He wants to see the beats stand on their own. You want to keep it two or three sentences per beat. Very simple. 
what happens in the scene, who's in the scene, what are the people trying to get in the scene. And then you separate that between all four storylines. You start mixing the stories, right? You start figuring out what's the best opening beat, what's the best teaser break, the teaser break being when you cut to the titles and the, you want the viewer to stay engaged. And you'll discover some things at this point. You'll discover kind of the passage of time doesn't work here. You need a break between when... You meet the patient and her fiancé, and the fiancé and her break up. How much time do you need, do the viewers need emotionally, you know? And how do you weave in your B story, your C story, your D story? So a lot of it is about the order in which things go. This beat doesn't work, or I could add this beat. Or, or dramatically, this feels too repetitive to the B story. Or thematically, you know, these stories aren't talking to each other. And then the next step of the process would be outlines where you blend those. Like, what order is each beat going in in each storyline? So I think that's the cool thing is story document, beat sheet, outline, script. You discover new things at every phase. I think the challenge is when you discover those things, you still have to stay true to the previous document that your bosses saw. So you have to kind of figure out how much can I change, how much can I not change, and when I change it, how do I communicate why I made that change? For example, one of the big hang-ups that our character had with physical intimacy was the, the first idea was that his girlfriend had a uneven mole on one side of her body but not on the other side and for him because he's something that really really values order that bothered him to the point where he couldn't touch her or move on and at a certain phase that that idea had been approved all the way through outline we we're almost there and then we had somebody chime in kind of saying i don't like this mole story it just makes him look like very petty and it's, it's misogynistic and it was credibility to all of the carings, but it was so late in the stage that I kind of had to pivot and figure out, okay, I can't do that anymore. That's out. That was a big proponent of a lot of the beats. That was kind of the turning point, and, and that was the, the reason why he couldn't go through these things, at least what he thought the reason was. It turns out to be something more emotional. So I kind of had to brainstorm and figure out, okay, what else could it be? And I ended up coming up with the idea that it's a tattoo. It's a tattoo that has a, kind of an incomplete thing. It's a, it's a half of a heart and in his mind because the character's friend, best friend, has the other half of the heart, but in... in Sean's mind, it's like, why is there half of a heart that bothers me? I don't know what that means. It's incomplete. That was a huge adjustment. I felt like the end of the world at the time. I have a very inefficient process that I need to improve. But for this show specifically, because there's so many different storylines, I have a whiteboard at home, and then I have a whiteboard in my office. I'll have the A storyline on one whiteboard, the B storyline on another. But what I got in the really bad habit of doing was I would break one of the stories on the whiteboard saying, here are the act breaks. We're a six-act show, which means we have six commercial breaks, which need to be either emotional act-outs or a medical act-out. So you have to put in six act breaks for three storylines, 18 act breaks. I would figure out the beats for, for like the first medical storyline in, in the office, and then I would take all the note cards off that board, and I would take it home and put them up on my home board. I don't know why I didn't just photocopy or whatever. So I, I'd get probably half the work done in the office, which is nice, because you can bounce those ideas off, you know, an upper level producer that you trust, and just kind of talk those problems out. But I also like to kind of be at home and have my own thoughts and break stories at home. So I, my process is probably half in the office, half at home. I would say the outline might take anywhere from two to four weeks. The story document, depending on how much time you've had in the room to discuss that episode, may take far less time. But if you are a lower-level writer, which, which I am, you're not going to really have that time in the room to discuss what the episode is. You're doing that on your own and in conjunction with your supervising producer. I think that's actually kind of one of the rewards, I think, of, of going later in the batting order is you really do get to build your own episode. 
The downside being you don't have that same room environment where you're getting everybody's opinions, although sometimes that can be work to your detriment. It is interesting in this show, the faster you get the approval of the outline, the more time you're going to have to write the draft. That's always kind of a blessing. But again, a lot of those things are not within your control. Usually the, the first writer's draft, you're going to get a lot less time. You know, you'll get a week. It's really, really scary because there's, there's always a moment where you realize, I think within the first, when you sit down and write, after you spent all this time getting the outline approved by the studio, the network, the producers, and you realize, oh my God, I can't write the show or I can't write at all or I don't know how to write these scenes. I, that's usually the first day of sitting down and writing. And then for our show, it's the medical too. What I was told going into the show, I, I've never really watched medical shows and have no experience as a doctor, was that you don't have to worry about the medical. You know, the, I've heard on Grey's Anatomy that you put in the medicaling, the medical, the medicaling, the medical, and you turn that in, and then the, the doctor on staff or the consultant will fill in the blanks for you. That's not entirely true. Like, for example, my, one of my medical cases was about the abdominal aorta. I never realized you have an aorta in your abdomen. I thought the aorta is in your heart. You only have one aorta. It turns out you have more than one. So it's figuring out how to tell the emotional beats of the storyline, figure out the beginning, middle, and end of a medical scene. And again, this is a medical show. There are medical beats. While understanding the basic medicine, I try to look at the timeline first, which is you kind of have a parameters which they're saying, hey, get me the first draft by X date or around X date. And again, being a six-act show, I'll say, okay, I have X amount of time, which means I have to finish all the beats in the medical storyline A, Acts 1 through 3 by Tuesday. And inevitably, you don't meet those deadlines, and you kind of just have to start compressing time. There's no order or semblance to what I plan out the way that I, things I fail, all my schedules always fail. You do have to get it done. That's the thing about you self imposed deadlines when I'm running my own pilots and specs. Like, I can say, hey, I, I wasn't feeling good today, but for, for, for a show, you have to finish. So what I've learned is not to overschedule, which may not work for everybody, but if I try to break it down and say, I need to write 3.5 scenes, I need storyline every 15 hours, like what I've learned is that I'm just setting myself up for failure and I'm wasting time by creating that schedule. So I just dive in. I just dive in, try to get as much done as possible. I always try to leave a little bit of window of time to rewrite, which is to look back at what I've done at the end of the day. I like try to end at a place where I know where I'm going the next day in the sense of kind of, ooh, I know this upcoming scene between Sean and Carly at Chuck E. Cheese. Like, I'm excited to write that scene. And so I'll save that scene for the next day because I know when I wake up the next morning, I know what I'm doing. I'm excited to go there. So I just try to leave at a place where I don't want to stop. The first thing I did was I wrote each storyline separately. I didn't write in order. Kind of with the beat sheet, you know, where you figure out wh which stories you're telling and then you blend them. But when I went to script, I wrote each individual storyline separately. So I kind of kind of tracked this to the beginning and the middle end as opposed to jumping. This is the first beat of the A storyline, first beat of the D storyline. Once I finish those individual storylines, I'll start blending them and I'll look at each act. And once I finish each act combined with everything that they're going to shoot, I'll go and reread that with a pen. I'll edit things out, the dialogue. I'll kind of rewrite myself. Uh, my rule is always before I send it out to a producer or the showrunner, I have to kind of rewrite it and look at it on paper. It's terrible from the environment, but I, I seem to notice more things when you look at the written paper as opposed to on an iPad or through a screen. I do a revision pass. I, I do one dialogue pass, specifically looking at all dialogue. I do one pass for the medicine. And, and again, on this show, I don't I'm so ignorant when it comes to the medicine that I'll make phone calls to. So we have a uh, we have a advisor who's the he's the head of neurosurgery at Duke University. He's also kind of on full time retainer to our show. 
So I'll reach out to him and ask him questions, being saying, hey, what's, what's a good complication here? What type of drug would impair a doctor the most? What's the type of test that could detect that? And he's so knowledgeable that he would talk for 20 minutes about the condition or the type of surgery you're doing. And I would retain probably 1% of it, you know? So I realized it wasn't the most efficient use of my time to always reach out to the surgical consultant. But yeah, that's something I'll do on the surgical scenes. Writing for characters with autism, I think, is it's very tricky because it's a spectrum, meaning that some people might have certain traits of autism that others don't. So if you portray somebody who's afraid of touch or you portray somebody that doesn't like loud noises, that may not be true to the experience of millions of other people with autism. And then you have an audience that's very tuned in and watching, and you know, a lot of families are affected by autism. And they'll say, well, that's not the experience of my son or my daughter or my father. You kind of have to own that you're saying, yeah, this is the experience of one person on the spectrum. There's one kind of maxim, which is that if you've met one person on the spectrum, you've met one person on the spectrum. It's tricky. You know, it's, it's somewhat similar, I think, to kind of talking about race or gender in television, but it's even a wider, wider range. So we do have a lot of resources available to us. We have an autism consultant. Her name is Melissa Reiner. She reviews every story document, every outline, every draft. You can give her a call, email her, saying, hey, in your opinion, would Sean react this way in a game of Seven Minutes of Heaven or Spin the Bottle? And she'll offer her opinion. It's not always 100% resolute, but she's an expert who works with people with autism. We also have a writer in our writer's room who's on the spectrum as well. You know, he's also a resource. So there are a lot of things. I read a lot of books going into it, listened to some podcasts, just tried to educate myself the best that I could. But I will say that I don't know if any of those experiences really prepared me for like the reality of an awesome consultant reading every single scene. There's so many different opinions on it. It's, it's tricky. And I do feel a really big responsibility to try to represent it in a sense where you're not kind of creating this, you're not infantilizing people with autism. You're not making them look like helpless children that need to be helped. Uh, but you're also staying true to the condition. I had one storyline about a couple who were both on the autism spectrum. So every interaction they had, you know, what the way they would express love to each other, the, the conflicts they would have. Like I was really checking in with her every step of the process. I would say the second time around, I, I didn't, didn't lean on that as much. You know, she's very helpful. But, but what I realized was the more input you get from experts, the more input you get in general, the more overload you get. Because people have great ideas, but your job as a writer, specifically when you're on script is to put those ideas down on paper and to finish that document. I will say, like, you know, like, especially when I'm writing these drafts, like, I won't eat lunch with everybody else because I want to work on the draft. So I remember whenever I turn that final draft, it's just this exhale, and then you go into the writer's room, and you're so loose, and you're ready to socialize. Uh, but you're waiting. You're waiting to get feedback. You know, this is, I think most shows, particularly this one, you're going to get notes. It doesn't matter what shape that draft is in. And as soon as you get those notes back, the onus is back on you. You're back in the chair. You're back in the driver's seat. You're busy, you know, you're anxious, you're, you want to get it done. So, yeah, you just wait. Sometimes it takes two days, sometimes it takes three days, four days. But you're waiting to hear what, what your boss thinks of the script, what you can do to make it better. And, again, at this point, there's a timeline. They need to prep for production by X date. And you're looking at the calendar. Oh, now I have seven days till prep. I have five days till prep. I have two days till prep. The thing you want to avoid as a lower-level writer is if they're two days before prep, and you just got a draft back from the Shorner with, you know, 20 pages of notes, they're going to turn your script over to somebody else to write, which is what you don't want to happen because you, you want to finish the process from A to Z. So, uh, yeah, a lot of it is, I think, a network is you are looking at that calendar. You're looking at the production schedule. And it's just kind of the, the sands of time.
when getting notes back on the first draft to the production draft, and then you have the ta- we have the table read between. So, so the order is writer's draft, that goes back and forth between the showrunner and the writer, then it goes to the studio network, you get notes from them. After they approve, you go to the table read, which is all the actors sitting around the table reading it out loud, you get notes on that, then you go to the production draft. And then from even, even from then on, you're still getting notes. I would say from the time I first in, turned in that first draft to the network studio draft, probably a week, the table read, another five days, and then the production draft, another week after that. So the production draft is it's kind of the point where you say, okay, things are not going to change significantly at this point. The ADs have kind of planned out the days for the shoots, all, all the locations, and all the guest stars are cast and set. So that's when you can kind of exhale a little bit and start getting ready to go up to Vancouver for the shoot. So the great thing about the show is all writers get to go up and produce their episodes. So we shoot in Vancouver. They put you up at you know this nice hotel. They bring you food on set. It, it, it's a great experience. What's it like seeing people perform the words that you've written, per se? Uh, for me, honestly, it's I don't know how to enjoy things. I usually, uh, especially my first season, I was, I'm just kind of focused on the anxiety of like, how can I do the best job I can possibly do producing this episode on set? And I think the second season when I came back, I, I was a I was a better at that job because I had less anxiety. I wasn't operating from a place of fear, a fear of like, oh, this script is terrible, or this director doesn't know how to execute this scene, or these actors don't know what they're doing. All that was gone. When second season, I was, I was able to just kind of focus and and try to find the little places to help the director if he has questions about the intention of a character in a scene. When I say producing your episode, it means you are physically on set and you are the liaison for the director or the UPM to say, hey, we have a, a question for the writer about a scene. Or, or even they ask you questions kind of saying, what color prop do you think this heart is? Not, not a heart. Heart's always the same color. But, and, and you have to have the answer to those questions. And, and what I've learned is that you really have to know your script. And that sounds like a very kind of basic, obvious statement, but it's not. Because you need to think about wardrobe department's going to be saying, oh, what do you think this fiance, what, what's her fashion sense? What's she like? And I remember the first season they asked me that question. I just kind of came up with, oh, it's kind of a steampunk, uh, hit, you know, steampunk punk band look. And I kind of came out of nowhere. But like, you got to have those answers to those questions. And you have to learn, A, to be prepared. B, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. You don't say, I don't know too much. But you have to know every single little detail. Actors can come to you and ask questions, and, and they're thinking about their characters so specifically. You know, they'll come to you and say, where, what was my character's intention or emotion in this last scene? Or where were we physically located blocking-wise in the last scene? You know, I had to say kind of, well, let me think about that for a minute. There was one scene that was completely in Chinese. I'm not Chinese, but I had to write kind of what they're going to translate into Chinese. I remember I was doing that on set. It's important to me to, to write in roles for Asian-American characters particularly in the context, for me, in relationships, to see each other, um, see, see people falling in love and see the steps of getting married, breaking up, because I just, I just never saw those things growing up. So it was kind of difficult for me to picture myself falling in love or myself, like, what do I do when I like somebody? What are the steps that I take? And anytime me and my brother ever saw an Asian version on television, we'd be like, hey, come to the TV, come to the, there's a Snickers commercial with an Asian guy, because it was so rare to see those characters. So much of what our perception is of how we should behave and what what our value is, I think is it's it is via the media. It is. It's whatever is in the zeitgeist kind of shapes what is attractive. What what do you who are you? What how attractive are you? So once I got the opportunity to start writing characters, it was important for me to to write characters that look like me or came from similar backgrounds than me. 
And it's tricky because you can't just say these characters are Asian. Like you, you just, it doesn't work. You kind of have to justify it. So if you write an Asian American character in, they're going to say, why does this character have to be Asian? You know, and you have to answer that question. You have to answer that creatively and also within the world of medicine. I think any time a character is specified and in any way they'll ask that question, but they won't ask that question if the character is white because that's just kind of the default. You know, Jenny, 25, uh, 25, perky, whatever, right? And the casting comes in because the way the process works, you're going to get 80% white actors in that situation. A lot of it's because I think a lot of the minority actors don't have the same connections to get into those auditions and casting rooms. Whereas if you specify and say, Vietnamese American, Jenny, Perky, then they start going to the places they don't always go. They don't call the same agents and managers that are plugged in where the majority of the actors are going to be white. They start searching and posting on forums and, and Facebook groups saying, hey, does anybody know a Vietnamese actress aged 25 to 40 You know, that can play this part? And that's when you start getting hidden gems, people that are doing theater, people that haven't gotten the opportunities that, but have the talent. Because it's like once once those tapes come in, and even when you specify Asian, like there's still a lot of very talented people that are gonna really gonna vie and fight and claw for that role. Like it's it makes a big difference though for sure. So it kind of becomes a tricky balance of well, you're just self advocating here, and it it doesn't serve the show creatively. You know you're biased, so you, you have to figure out a way to to advocate, but also justify that creatively. So what I would do is I would try to come up with conditions that only Asian people get, which isn't a real thing. For for this story specifically, the way I kind of sold it was I said, we never get to see Asian-American couples talking about sex. Usually when you see Asian-American characters on TV, there's problems with the parents. Their parents don't approve of what they're doing. You don't get to see them really, really exploring issues of their relationship that are not related to kind of cultural issues or issues, you know, with disapproval of parents or, you know, interracial issues or whatever. So that that was uh, one way that I kind of sold this to be like, let's get some Asian American characters in this. Previously in my episode, there was a mechanical heart that one of the elderly patients was using. And some research would show that this specific type of mechanical heart was only manufactured in China. So I said kind of on the basis that since this type of mechanical heart is only based in China, it's most likely that it would be a Chinese or Chinese American woman that has that. And I also read this article, I think it was I think it was in Beijing, but it was it was an old man had put himself up for adoption. He wanted to be adopted by a young a young man or woman because he had been estranged from his child. So I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of combine those two things, where you have a Chinese American woman that has said estranged from her daughter, who says, "Look, I'm I'm looking for a new daughter because my old one has abandoned me." It was just a very emotional thing. It's kind of unconventional, and but she also has the mechanical heart condition. How do you survive the anxiety? I think a lot of it comes from just being confident in yourself, which I think is a journey for for everybody. Uh, But being confident in your ability and what you've accomplished to the point where you're not always paranoid about, like, am I doing this right? Do these people think I'm doing this right? I think that's a big part of, you know, what I need to evolve in and kind of own. I think I've gotten better at. I think the fear pushes me through. I think knowing you have to finish the deadline, I'm going to finish it. I mean, for instance, when, you know, when I got the note that the mole thing, that's not it. It's not going to be in the story. It's not going to be in the script. 
I, I remember I sat down and I had written a couple emails like, kind of defending the mole thing. And then, uh, you know, I read one of those drafts and I was like, okay, this is, the decision's been made by the powers that be. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think I was kind of frozen at that point. I wasn't really sure what to do. And that's when I just started listing, I started doing lists on the whiteboard of what else could the mole be. And I came up with some things besides the tattoo that definitely weren't going to work. But I think that was an instance of, of pushing through the anxiety and uh, also kind of a lesson in just how to take notes. I think I've learned that in my second year better, which is that you have to take the note. It's like the the initial reaction to any note is always going to be very emotional. You're going to feel like you're being attacked. Uh, one thing I've realized is that when I read notes, instantly after I've got them, is a, in, there's a voice in my head of the person that's giving me the note, and the voice is very abrasive and very judgmental. But if you go back and read that same note three or four days later, it's like, hi, Brian. I think it'd be great if you changed this. This is great work here. And you realize, oh, my God, like this person is trying to help me. So I think I've learned, I think I've learned to, to take notes better, which, is, which has helped with the anxiety. One piece of advice that I, that I have to give would be my litmus test for whether or not something is ready to send to somebody. So let's say you're sending an email to anybody, whether it's a manager, a producer, a showrunner. My, my rule is that when I'm putting the mouse cursor over send, if I don't feel this anxiety, and that anxiety being if I click send, this person's going to know things about me. They're going to know things about my life. They're going to know things about my perspective that are very, very vulnerable and revealing, you know? Like, I take gym selfies every day, whatever it is. Like, if I don't feel that fear and anxiety, then that sample is not ready to go out. So that's, that's what I like to tell people is, is that's, that's a good test to know whether something's ready or not. I'm trying to grow. I'm just trying to grow as a writer and as a person. Uh, I feel like every show you go to, you are exposed to a different type of storytelling, different way of breaking story. And, and I just want to keep growing. I want to keep trying different mediums, uh, eventually want to grow into having my own show, writing features. But right now, it, yeah, I'm still in the process of just kind of learning and building relationships and becoming a better writer. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.